We're in a series on the book of Hebrews, and uh, this is a letter that was written, by, no doubt, by a pastor. It's a pastoral letter written um, to a, a group of Messianic Jews or Christ followers that grew up in a Jewish background. And uh, as Alex said uh, before, this is pretty much the most hyperlinked book in the entire New Testament. Uh, if you think of it as a Wikipedia page, if you put it into that format, right? Uh, all of the little words that are in blue link to other pages, right? Uh, every other word in the book of Hebrews is linking you back to different places throughout the Old Testament. Remember, it was written by a pastor to a group of Messianic Jews, and so these guys knew their Bibles. Um, and so it's, it's full of all kinds of Old Testament quotations and allusions and all kinds of stuff that makes it a little bit difficult for us to read at first glance, but also makes it a rich feast when we unpack it together. I've also noticed as we've been going through this book uh, that the tone of the letter is very direct. It's urgent and it's personal. This is clearly written uh, by someone, whoever he or she was, uh, who really loved these people and who was really concerned for them. You, we speak most directly to the people that we most love, right? If you've been married to someone for years and years and years, maybe in like the first week of marriage, you would sort of beat around the bush on certain issues. But as time goes on, you get a little bit more direct, don't you? Uh, it's with those who we most love that we're most direct. And so our passage this morning is very direct. Um, and it's very full of concern. Four, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That word fear is actually the first word in the Greek sentence. So it reads more like, fear therefore, lest when the promise of entering his rest has been left open or is still standing, any of you should turn out to have fallen short of it. Hebrews 4 says there's a relationship between fear and rest. We have to have the right kind of fear so that we can enter God's rest. And so this morning I want to explore these concepts because this feels a little foreign to me. Um, fear and rest and the connection between them. First, fear. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach God's rest. Is it just me, or does that word make you a little uncomfortable? I thought, I thought 1 John 4.18 said, perfect love casts out fear. What do you mean you want me to be afraid, Hebrews? Sometimes I like to take my boys hiking at Fall Run Park. It's uh, up off of Route 8. It's maybe a, probably only a, couple, a few miles from here, the way the crow flies, but... Um, you hike about three-quarters of a mile up along this kind of river or stream, and there's this beautiful waterfall there. And um, if there's some wooden stairs that are really well-made that you can actually carry your stroller. I'm just giving you a little glimpse into my life. Uh, you carry your stroller up to the top of it, and um, it just so happens that the best streams for turning over rocks and waiting and ruining your clothes and searching for salamanders are all at the top of the waterfall, of course, right? 
And um, so when we go up there, uh, I don't let my kids go within 20 yards of the edge of that waterfall, because I know it's at least a 50-foot drop. Um, and they're a goner if they go over the edge of that thing. And so uh, if I see a kid starting to go toward them, I want them toward that waterfall. I want them to fear. I want fear. Um, fear is a good thing when there is real danger. I yell. I say, stop. In an ideal world, I don't say that every day in our household. Um, in an ideal world. Uh, don't go a step nearer. Any good parent who loves their child will do that. They want their child to fear the real danger. And that's the New Testament idea. Fear when the danger is real. Don't fear when there's not anything to be afraid of. So, for example, uh, 1 John 8, 4.18 is about the day of judgment. That's what John's talking about in the context there. The point of 1 John 4.18 is of perfect love casts out fear is that followers of Jesus don't need to fear the day of judgment. That's not a threat to you. That's not a danger. Because in his perfect love, he took the judgment upon himself that we deserved. There's nothing to be afraid of. Perfect love has cast that out. Hebrews 2.14 says that in Christ you have been delivered from the power of death and the one who wields that, the devil, so you don't need to fear them. There's nothing to be afraid of. That's like, think about the Apostle Paul. He was fearless. He was like, you're going to throw me in prison? All right, I'll preach to the guards. You're going to kill me? Great. To live as Christ, to die as gain, man. It's all good. No fear. What would your life be like if you didn't have any fear of death? Be totally free. But we do need to fear in some respects. There is a kind of fear that is proper in the Christian life. And what is it? The promise of entering God's rest still stands, so we need to fear whatever might prevent us from entering that rest. Question. What might prevent us from entering God's rest? Whenever I run into something like this in the scriptures where I don't get it, it's always helpful to zoom out. Look at the verses before. Look at the verses afterwards. Almost without exception, there's some kind of clue. So, the verse right before, chapter 3, verse 18. So we see that they, Israel, were unable to enter God's rest because of unbelief. Same idea in chapter 4, verse 2. For good news came to us, just as, to it, as it did to Israel, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. What presents us from entering God's rest? Unbelief, faithlessness, fear, unbelief, fear, faithlessness. Don't fear death. Don't fear judgment. Stay by the side of Christ. Fear whatever would happen if you go away from the side of Christ. We see the same idea throughout chapter 3. Verse 12 says, Take care, or literally, look out, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Or verse 13, But exhort one another. That means kind of encourage and provoke onward. 
and exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I think it's important to clarify here. It does not say fear asking hard questions. It doesn't say fear questioning. I mean, we see examples throughout the scriptures of people who press up against God with all of the difficult things of their hearts. That's not the kind of unbelief that I believe the author of Hebrews is talking about. The kind of unbelief that we should fear is the hardening of your heart. The creep that turns your heart of flesh into a heart of stone. The thing that we should fear is the deceitfulness of sin that produces unbelief. So, exhort one another every day, fear unbelief, because, second half, the promise of entering God's rest still stands. It still stands. Well, what does that mean? Well, the first and obvious question, answer is that this is a promised land rest. The, an, the promise of entering the promised land is open to me and it's open to you. Uh, does anyone ever remember going on a trip? Anyone ever been away from home for more than a week? Show of hands. All right, cool. You come in and you go, oh, I'm home. It's a great feeling. Um, you've been away and you walk in the door. Maybe you drop your bags. Uh, and this is your place in the world. Maybe it's safe. Maybe it's quiet. Uh, more often than not, you know where the coffee filters are. Unlike those cursed Airbnbs where you never know what you're going to get. You know, you open the fridge and you know where the marmalade is. At least most of you. Uh, it's home, right? Home is a great thing. You're safe. Uh, that's what the promised land was to Israel. God pledged to give them a place in the world, to give them a home. Back in Genesis 12, the very beginning of the Bible, the Lord appeared to Abram, their father, and said, to your offspring, I will give all this land. And he lays out these extensive boundaries. He promises, I'm going to give it to your people. So when Moses leads the Hebrew people out of Egypt, they're headed somewhere. He's not like, let's go out into the desert and just wander around infinitely. There's a destination in mind, the promised land. And the book of Exodus describes it as a place of health and blessing, where, um, where pregnancies go well, where people live long, rich lives. And it's, quote, flowing with milk and honey. It doesn't mean that the rivers ooze. It means that there's plenty of vegetation and grass for supporting cattle. There's uh, plenty of flowers in order to have bees. It's a lively place. It's rich. It's Edenic. God's design is that his people would have shalom. They would have wholeness and peace and life to the full. That's the kind of rest that he's talking about. Have you ever had those seasons? Maybe you're in one right now. Where like no matter if you sleep two like 10 hour sleeps in a row, you're still exhausted. It's like that deep kind of soul unrest. That soul exhaustion. Um, this, this disconnection from God and yourself and from other human beings. That's a lack of shalom. Um, God, that is not God's will in the end. 
That's not what he has for us. That's not what the promised land is. It's that wholeness. Um, of course, we know how the story goes. Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness, and for a whole generation, they wandered around in this kind of holding pattern, like an airplane that doesn't have any room, so they're just kind of like, you know, sitting on the runway for three hours or 40 years. And then when the next generation finally comes up and they get to go into the promised land under Joshua, they didn't really take it over. Um, The writers of of Hebrews knows this, and that's why he says in verse 8, if Joshua had given the people rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. That's part of the point of chapters 3 and 4, is that Moses was great, but he didn't bring the people all that God had promised. Joshua is great, but he didn't bring the people into all that God had promised. Actually, here's the scandalous thing. Israel never possessed anything close to the land that was promised to them. They never enjoyed the wholeness and peace that God had for them. And so Hebrews 3 and 4 is saying that this promised rest, this real homecoming, is still a standing promise. And it's not just a bunch of acreage in Palestine. You know, that, that's the most contested bunch of real estate in the world right now, and has been for as long as I can think of. Um, but I, I wonder if we're all not having a giant exercise in missing the point. There's something more in mind. Plato, uh, the great Greek philosopher, said uh, that true enlightenment, he told this allegory that was really um, one of the worst metaphors that I've ever seen a preacher kind of come up with, but it's survived for 2,500 years, so I'm just going to tell it to you. Um, he said it's like, um, it's, it, it's like the philosopher is like one who goes into a dark cave, Um, and, uh, all the people in there are, like, chained down, and they're, they're, they're forced to stare at a wall, okay? So the sunlight, the the mouth of the cave is behind them. They can't see anything out there. They're just looking at the wall, and they can see the shadows of things. Uh, they can see the light pouring through and shining off the wall, and they can see forms and shadows and sort of like a 2D shadow puppet show, right? That's all they know of reality, and they think, hey, this is it. But the truly enlightened one comes in and takes their shackles off and brings them out into the real light. And the real world is so much richer. It's so much better. This kind of idea that the things that we see are really just shadows of the reality, I think it really coheres with the biblical message. Uh, This was in the water at the time of the writing of Hebrews. And I I think that, that it actually gets to the truth that what we see when we look at promised land is just a shadow compared to the reality that is there. And so Hebrews is saying that there's a new heaven, a new earth, a real rest promised to everyone, all on account of this one faithful Israelite, Jesus the Messiah. So there's a home for you in Christ Jesus. Um, Even if your current home doesn't cut it, there's a real home. Um, your very best memories of belonging and safety don't hold a candle to it. That's what lies ahead. Um, That's the first kind of rest that Hebrews 3 and 4 is talking about. But there's also another kind of rest, um, and it's a Sabbath rest. Now, as I read through the Old Testament, I don't see these two ideas 
connected all the time, but really they're kind of getting at the same thing. Chapter 4, verse 9 of Hebrews says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which just means stop. One of the Ten Commandments, number four, is about this. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day, the stop day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a stopping to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or anybody in your household or anybody you know. For in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, the stopping day, and made it holy or set apart. So remember, when Israel hears this, they're fresh out of Egypt. Um, and it's not gone so easy for them in Egypt. Exodus 1.13 says that the Egyptians, quote, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Quote, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Now, if you feel like I'm describing your job, that's part of the point. This was their life, unceasing production. Greater efficiency is demanded. Make more bricks, but I'm not going to give you straw. Every single day, you are defined by what you do. Your whole identity is reduced to your function. You are a human performing, a human doing, not a human being. And so... God rescues them out of Egypt, brings them out and into the desert, and says, I'm bringing you to the promised land, this place of ultimate rest. It's lying ahead. But before you get there, stop. Shabbat. Um, we learn that God himself observes a Sabbath on the seventh day of creation. So the seventh day is set apart as something special or holy. Work is good. Uh, the Bible... You, Across the Bible says, work is good. It was there before the fall, right? Uh, but work has a boundary. God mandates that his people take a whole day out of every week to rest and delight and worship. Um, on a practical note, uh, the Sabbath is not the same thing as a, quote, day off. Um, it's, it's really more of a day on actually. Uh, it's not a time for catching up on the all the housework that you've been neglecting or shuttling the kids to practice or getting your Christmas shopping done. It's a day to stop. Just stop and delight. Uh, this is a, a practice that um, Jenna and I have fought hard to cultivate over the years, and I would not dare to say that we are good at it. <laughs> um, so, uh, do, as a, do as I hope and, and strive to do. Um, enter the rest that I strive to enter into. Do not think that I am some sort of, on some sort of level above the rest of you. But I've found that this has been the most life-giving, the most soul-healing, the most marriage-strengthening thing that I've ever done. Just taking a day each week to stop 
Um, if you were, who here was lucky enough to grow up before the internet ruined everything? Uh, yeah? All right. Sorry, kids. Um, they used to have these things called snow days, right? Uh, and when, when there would be an ice storm or like the roads were unsafe, uh, you couldn't log into Zoom. I know, Zoom didn't exist. Uh, the 90s really were the time, weren't they? They were great. Um, but that's, that, that's I, not the Lord. Um, but, but your teacher couldn't post your assignments on some sort of online portal. They couldn't communicate with you. Everything just stopped. And we went outside, and we played in the snow, and then we came inside. We drank hot chocolate and ate grilled cheese sandwiches. And without knowing it, we observed a Sabbath. And it was a little taste of heaven, wasn't it? Right here and right now. It's a little taste of the rest that is to come. And you go back and after your snow day and you're so excited to see your friends. Somehow you're able to focus and be more productive than you were before. It's funny. It's almost like God designed us that way. The author of Hebrews says that this rest, your best snow day, the Sabbath, is just a shadow compared to what's coming. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So in Christ, we get to look forward to this grand homecoming, the ultimate snow day, real deep rest. That's what heaven is. But, the author of Hebrews says, fear the unbelief and faithlessness that would keep you from entering into that rest. And the sad truth is that for many of us, and maybe on some level all of us, um, unbelief prevents us from entering his rest every single week. On a very practical level, our unbelief, this isn't like some sort of woo-woo spiritual thing. This is like very practical. Our, my values and my unbelief dictate whether I rest or not. The great Sabbath rest to come, I'm afraid, is an enigma to us uh, because we're afraid even to stop long enough to enjoy just like the little ones here and now. You're just rushing everywhere. You're exhausted and you can't get off the treadmill. Is it possible that our restless working and our constant running and our anxiety is at its core a symptom of our unbelief? and our hardness of heart. Jesus is really clear about this. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you will drink, nor about your, your body, what you will put on. Unbelievers seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I'll take care of you. That's what he says. I will take care of you. Trust me on this. We have a Christ who promised to give us rest. He died and he rose again by his mighty power to secure that promise. So we have actually nothing to fear. As long as we rest our confidence in him. Um, and so the question that confronts me as I preach this sermon, um, I'm going to put to you too. Do you trust him enough to stop? Do you trust him enough 
to stop. I'll close with verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Father, will you enable us to enter your rest? Give us faith. Help us to stop if we're on the treadmill and we can't get off. These things we pray in your holy, precious, triune name. Amen.